0: Between the three of us, will figure out how to work the slide projector. Uh, one of the great things about being uh, CEO at UHN is uh, when you go to talk in Toronto, a lot of people show up, even though I don't want to. Uh, so, thank you to all my UHN colleagues for being here today. Uh, so, uh, so this is a, a daunting task to talk about improving uh, quality and safety in an uh, overburdened, and, uh, and, and, and um, maybe we just talk about what we by overburdened uh, health system, uh, both for patients, difficult to navigate. For providers who don't see a great bright light at the end of the tunnel in terms of it being easier days ahead, if anything, perhaps the train, uh, and certainly for funders and payers who are constantly asking, gee, how do I get more value out uh, of a challenging investment that is already by far the largest in our sector? So, um, for all the talk about, obviously, for all the talk about uh, healthcare quality and health system performance, we have been indeed frozen in time. This is a, a public publication, and, and as you can see, a lot of you have really good eyes for 2014 in the DMJ. 50 to 60% of care has been delivered in line with level one evidence or, uh, or consensus-based guidelines for at least a decade and a half. And I think we all want to figure out why is that? Why is it that even where we have conclusive evidence, we are still not implementing it? And I'm going to suggest to you Incentive alignment and the tolerance of uh, variation beyond the norm is clearly the enemy of good healthcare. So, healthcare is a team sport, uh, and clearly, I maybe picked the wrong example, but one lives in hope every year. Uh, this year might be a, might be the one. Uh, but even in the team sport, as you can see, there's a lot of white space between those team players. And uh, how do we navigate that white space, which I would say is where our patients are most frequently challenged. And it is the point of transition every time. And and to use the hockey example, can we skate where the puck is going? Because at the moment, we almost always hear from our patients, you know what, you didn't do a bad job when I broke my arm and I was pretty happy when you treated my heart attack and my my mental health uh, crisis when I actually got to the right person. I wasn't entirely dissatisfied with my experience, but boy, the journey of being connected from one piece of the system, or not connected, to, to the next piece of the system, to the next piece of the system, and acting like a system, clearly we have just as much weight space. Uh, we certainly have a lot of work to do, uh, playing on the same team, And uh, you know, we, we have to speak a little bit honestly, uh, despite the fact that we talk about systems and sectors. I'll just pick on my own for the moment. Uh, in academic health science centers, we, there is still a lot of truth, there is still a lot of competition, there is still a lot of duplication. Uh, and the question behooves us to ask, is it good competition? So competition around quality. Dr. Baker is here somewhere. Uh, who would, I think, encourage that there is, us. Uh, wonderful competition around profile or patients or, dare I say, Angel Robbins, uh, image uh, donors. Uh, those are all realities of, uh, of the in- institutions that we work in, but how might we bring some of those things together? And I think Toronto is one of the very unique places in the world that has the opportunity to do that, not, not to be Toronto-centric in the province, but as, as do the other, I'll, I'll suggest academic cities or academic science center cities, where a greater focus on rationalization is absolutely possible and should be encouraged. And I'll, I'll just pick on a clinical example. Um, we have four remarkable cardiac institutions in Toronto that I know of, I'm sure we have more than that, in the Tennyson hospitals. So, I, you know, I think Peter Mugg is a very good program, I think the Keener program is a very good program, and I think the Labatt program is a very good program, and I think the Shulub program is a very good program. Four great hospitals. Four programs. We're competing, remember, around the world to attract industry to come and make your investment here in Toronto both for the betterment of patients and the betterment of commercialization. And our unified factor, the University of Toronto, to which we all are, are affiliated, we don't have a common strategic plan for cardiac that says, what are those four centers going to do, and how can we as a team sport actually play so we are better than that city uh, on the Charles that, that uh, Brian just mentioned, or at least competitive with. And how an industry gets to our door not have to navigate five doors of five institutions plus university to actually say you want to be best in the world. And I want to have some of our own behaviors to advance that. So today's discussion, a brief but I hope frank overview on patient and family engagement, on staff and physician and organizational engagement, and some system level engagement. So patient patients indeed are the best servers sure of quality. Uh, we have, there's tons of studies. I've just quoted one here from 2018. And many, many examples where when patients are engaged as their own quality assurance um, leader, we have better outcomes. In the United Kingdom, remarkable study on the reduction of venous fitting thrombosis when, when in fact patients are very engaged in monitoring. In the Netherlands, while well, we heard people don't want to travel, even in a country as small as the Netherlands, when well, they actually went to people, when they went to patients and families and said, we're a small country by, by both geography and population. We probably can't afford to have many great pediatric oncology centers. Patients, the public said, have one. Have one pediatric oncology center and make it as good as any in the world. And we are willing to travel, albeit a small country. And in Sweden, when we looked at dialysis care-related infections, they virtually disappeared. When patients were given all the information and the quality assurance tools, so clearly there are great opportunities for us to give um, patients that. I, know I see some of my colleagues here from, uh, from St. Job's, and thank you for being here, first of all, but I want to shout out the great work that just was being done and is being done on integrated care. And one of the great challenges of that was actually getting clinical teams comfortable and saying, we're going to tell you what to expect each and every day, before, during, and after. i on one domain, cancer surgery. And at first, the first reaction of most providers was, well, to we not do that? What if we don't do it? And after getting a little more comfortable, what well, if we don't do it? And they have an easy way to contact us. Just Cases and ask how do we give patients as much pre uh, oriented information as to what they should expect in their care journey, and how can that care journey then be evaluated and critiqued, and how do they reach out to us in real time? So, each and every time, not only for patients but for providers, the challenge of connection goes on and on and on. And one needs when I talk to a primary care physician around there or a nurse practitioner. Around their frustrations when trying to actually speak to you know, perhaps a consultant physician or a specialist physician or other healthcare provider in a big institution, maybe like UHN, who would say, You know, when I'm trying to connect with this person and get some more information about your care because we don't have an integrated electronic health record, and I can't do it. I'm not getting a call back. How many times has a home care worker tried to reach out to the care team of a frail elder patient, and they simply can't connect? With the medical professionals uh, who, who are important to that discussion and vice versa. Patient portals, as we know, uh, may, are made one of the most effective patient engagement tools, says the New England Journal of Medicine. Do, do you agree or disagree? Just, just a quick hint. So, if you think it's a great thing, good thing, bad thing, yes, important, you're, you're, but you're Canadian, half and half. Uh, so, so, I'm going to suggest to you that it's pretty good things. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that. 94% of patients reported an improved patient experience. And I had this experience since coming to UHN. I went and had a, a ultrasound on my, my elbow. And uh, believe it or not, I was, was the first time in my life delighted that I got an email that said, Your result is right. And I could go on, and I actually could go on and get to it, which was the most important thing, <laughs> As opposed to having shifting passwords and a whole bunch of validation actually, reading really. what was the interpretation? And what do I need to do? And wh- wh- who else do I need to see, if anybody? Thankfully, I know. So I'm going to suggest this whole movement of the democratization of information to patients. And our paternalism of saying they I won't understand or it's too complex, and as you can imagine, in which we had some discussion about, see, what if we give patients lab results and they're not normal and they are, are freaking out because they think there's something wrong with them and they're shy. And guess what happened? Nothing. Right? They they call, they pursue feedback. Yeah, do some patients go online and look at Google and do some patients see some things that are not free? Everything's based, of course, they do. But they're doing that anyway. And the task still remains of us, to raise the bar of the kind of information that becomes available. So the other piece, uh, and so many of you in this room have been integral to the voice of patients getting to the table. I want to shout out to Gail Donner, Dr. Donner, here today. And probably I could say you could leave now if I just say to you, how do we do this better? We implement Gail Donner's report. That would be a really simple summary of my my, um, my talk, especially as it relates to frail seniors and sick kids at people. But it is about creating a system of care, and it is unquestionable. Agendas, invite patients to hiring panels. Will they on occasion say thanks but no thanks, of course? On occasion, they may well do that, ask you some of we. But it is unquestionable that that voice and that perspective, when it permeates the entire organization, un- changes unbelievably the discourse at other tables, uh, and at management tables, at an MACs, at PACs, and, dare I say, most importantly, at our boards. And then create a meaningful partnership. And I think that is always about so, why are we here? What are we asking of you? What do we expect of you with um, patients? And listening, what would you like to give or get that we're, we're not actually delivering on? So, some pretty frank conversation, an honest conversation about our patients feeling like tokens in these discussions. Yes, check off the box, we have some patients. Or our patients actually being able to talk about the outcomes that they desire that they'd like to see, the support that they need uh, in order to be meaningful, so to speak, meaningful discussion. So what happens to be missing? And again, uh, tied in this talk, since we're in an esteemed learning institution to use the literature as much as possible, Professor Bohm, and uh, the New England Journal of Medicine and Catalyst talks about how do you hardwire engagement into every healthcare delivery process. And I want to commend this to you, to all of you, to really think, are we doing this? You know, and scorecards are, are the flavor of the day, and I hope will be the flavor for an off long time. But the three biggest challenges of designing patient engagement, by summary, time investment by the health team, a constant theme we're going to come back to about changing the system. Patient adoption, right? The patients actually want to do that. Uh, we you know there are some disciplines or some disease categories where once you're through the street and you do well, the last thing you want to do is remember that illness or be focused on it. We should accept that. But there are other ways of considering that adoption. And most importantly, I would say, in my experience, the greatest challenge is provider adoption. We are not beasts who love change. Uh, and despite uh, thinking in my youth that I was more malleable to change than I've discovered in my dotage, uh, we, it's that occasion uh, res- we are resistant to it. And the good old days, uh, we're, uh, we're yearning for them. Just remember, in 15 years, these will be the good old days. So staff physician and organizational engagement. Clearly so uh, middle managers and frontline staff are facing more and more and more complex, complicating, competing clinical and organizational demands, often with inadequate staffing, limited resources, and, shortage, uh, and shortages of equipment being from the literature. I think all of us would that would resonate with all of us in the audience today. So what what can we do? What should we be doing? And I think increasingly asking the question, uh, I know that we are guilty of this in the last two organizations I've worked at, uh, we often have multiple meetings on almost the same topic, with almost the same people, with almost the same non-outcome, over and over again. And are we, in fact, just avoiding making a decision that we all know is tough? Or or is this the illusion of consultation when, in fact, we've already decided we're not going to do it? Or is this a uh, resistance because it's such a polarizing topic? Roughly half the people want to do it and half the people don't want to do it. So, on average, we should do nothing. Uh, Clearly, we have to come back and talk about what are those competing organizational demands. I know the deputy minister is with us today. She has a few organizational demands as well. But will compel all of us, and I know this is the future and so I think our ministry as well as outside, what are some things we might just take off our planes for a while and say, those are really great things. But right at the moment, we know the rule of three. Organizations' capacity to focus on many more than three really important priorities and bandwidth is going to be extremely and exceedingly difficult pretty obvious in an internationally recognized academic health science system, the 3 are clinical care research and education. And I guess we have to constantly ask ourselves, are we putting our time into those things and are we are our agendas reflecting on um, How do we free up some of the time for our greatest events? We hear on every survey we do with physicians, with frontline staff, that I don't think enough time with my manager, I never see them. They're always in meetings. We're but budgets, usually, uh, and um, we're not talking about the kind of issues that I need to talk about in order to do my job with. So just ask the question, are we, are we meeting killers in the best sense of the word, and are we getting frontline staff and frontline decision makers together with strategic decision makers to actually ask the question in a bottom-up way? What do you need to move out of your way in order to make the most important goals and objectives happen, are you in fact focused on your more election strategic plan, or are you in fact focused on the minutia around that? And they, and the administrative which we hear from so many clinicians take away my bureaucracy, take away the frustrations I have of non-value add tasks that don't do anything for the patient and don't do anything particularly for my colleagues who are providing care. And how do you decrease the number of tasks uh, that do add to either care or scholarship? And the latter one I want to comment on, uh, particularly at this moment in time. M- most hospitals in Ontario are running at over 100% capacity in health systems every day. Uh, yet we also know that this is a remarkable environment in which to invest, particularly in research and training and education. And what suffers when we're trying to find a bed or juggle people or move them around repeatedly is a lack of planning capacity and, and unquestionably, when the patient is at the pole face in the emergency room, scholarship doesn't come first. So if, if the University of Toronto and the Affiliated Teaching Hospitals or McMaster or Queens or Western or Ottawa uh, really want to be on the world stage in terms of the very best science and attracting the very best investment. We've got to do a better job of figuring out how, in an over 100% capacity system, we are protecting scholarship. And uh, remember, all of the things that we're starting to get excited about and love, I think it's going to be neat and cool, read big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning, Those were developed at the interface of academic health sciences and the broader university research community. And at our peril, if you forget that, when we take money away or people away or time away from scholarship, we actually take time away from innovation and healthcare. So if you remember nothing else, how will you you protect innovation and scholarship in your institutions, be they public or private, and it, it is indeed a great threat when other parts of the world are absolutely making these investments and attracting the very brightest and the best. At the moment, Canada is doing remarkably well. As you know, you, like I, have read about Silicon Valley and, and uh, Boston and London. Toronto's, uh, Toronto's attracted more people in the last year to big data science and advanced computing, uh, in large part because of the power of the Computational Sciences Department at the University of Toronto. These are the interface of those scientists with clinicians and patients, dare I say, will be, will be life changing at a time when we know our economy is going to shift to a high qualified personnel, technology intensive economy. And we know we spend a tremendous amount of tax dollars on these topics, particularly in healthcare. How do we make that become more of an economic engine and simply an expense? Individual bandwidth, with. so addressing burnout early and often. I'm really happy this one has come out of the closet in the last number of years. and I, There's barely a day I go by, I'm sure for you as well, that I don't read about clinician burnout. The fact that in France, I was chatting with a colleague the other day, there is a physician suicide a week at Well, no. Maybe that was always the case, and the good news is we brought it out of the closet, I don't know. But we know that healthcare providers are increasingly at high risk for mental health uh, and and addiction disorders. And we really, the time for us to really look at how we address that and how we address quality of work life. And when you actually ask them what's causing them unnecessary stress, it's not about patient care. It's about clerical tasks that add no value to them and, frankly, our lack of implementation of scope of practice. A lack of access to meaningful, useful electronic records and other techno- technologically driven systems. And creating an organizational cu- culture of wellness. We all know, those of us in a certain age, can remember that the, uh, the old model, particularly in the training of healthcare providers, was tough enough, I did it, so now you should do it. Clearly, a very regressive model. Thankfully, we are having much better discussions about what it means to create a healthy work environment. And uh, one of the things I'm really pleased to hear people to talk to you about is uh, we've been fortunate at UHN to embark on a journey with some of our American colleagues, uh, the first uh, hospital in Canada. sure many more will join, working with the uh, National Academy of Medicine and also the Mayo Clinic on a really in depth clinician wellness assessment tool and uh, I hope in a few months or a year or so, you you might uh, consider inviting some of the leaders back to talk to you at breakfast with the chiefs about the results of that remarkable work Barry Rubin from our Peter Moncardian Center has has done so. Some of what we're talking about, and we'll often hear, well, it's expensive and we don't have any money and bandwidth and you just said we shouldn't have too many priorities, These don't have to all be massive. The the use of hand sanitizers, hand sanitizers where we all know we're still abysmally below 100%, was 5.28 times higher when the dispenser was in the middle of the entrance versus near the information desk. So I don't think it'll take a lot of energy, a lot of money. It might take far too many forms from from the building services department, but you know, these are very simple things, and uh, I think we wanna really start talking about what are the simple things that we can do across the healthcare system that we know make some significant difference. And back to the point of variation, if we walk into the 152 hospital corporations or 51, or however many there are today, um, corporations in the province of Ontario, I'd wager to say we couldn't find one thing, one thing, that is absolutely and clearly consistently done in every single hospital. As simple as, we'll put our hand sanitizer in the most effective place. And if we can't do something that simple, then clearly we, are, we have taken our eye off the ball of standards everywhere and standardization were appropriate. You know, so I want to repeat that, standards everywhere and standardization were appropriate. The most successful organizations, be it in healthcare or elsewhere, relentlessly study variation. Relentless and it doesn't mean they do something about it, but they ask the question, does it matter? And where it might matter, they dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And we see that over and over again with health special fund organizations. Um, this is an example uh, of Joe Casas is here somewhere. Joe, where are you? Wave your was here. There he is, Joe. Uh, great great work by Joe and his team on uh, health human factors and the importance of just looking at how, um, this isn't that simple, but some of the forms and formats and taking those forms and formats and actually asking the question, do we need the information? Does anyone do anything with the information? After it's collected Does the information, help uh, help the process of care or scholarship. And again, I think Joe and his team and a number of others across the province and the country are constantly in quest for, can we simplify this? So when you don't know, as a component of the care process or the research process, why we're doing something or why we're collecting something, is it easy in your organization to say, do we need to continue to do this? Is there any value add to anyone and when I began to share to my colleagues and CQO's and Hamilton, when, when we were doing the integrated care process and just, i pick on lung cancer because it was the first one we started on at least here, um, we, we really realized that when we took the clinical team and the patient and put them in a room somewhat considerably smaller than this one with post-it notes and said, go up to the board and put a post-it note for every step in the process of a lung cancer patient's experience. And then go we'll back up no one can say, that step mattered to me, take it down. And they took down half of the steps, half of the steps, and something as complicated as what we can go on. Now there's still an immense number of steps up there, as there should be. Uh, however, and the few steps that they took down had to go back up was a remarkable opportunity to educate people, who henceforth had said, or previously had said, I don't know why we do that, it's just something we've always done. Who now I absolutely, absolutely understand why that process step in the process is important, and I think we really need to keep going back to the of simplicity. The, old, the those of you old enough to remember what's the perfect medical consultant will remember the type the term uh, able available and affable, and I think you can make that same comment of what's the perfect um, mental health system leader, uh, health system follower. So listening to what people need and really engaging with them about what's the art of the possible, acting on their recommendations. I uh, want Howard, and the team are here today from UHN. and Jill And David, my colleague who uh, keeps me honest and puts me into shape on all my communication stuff at UHN, uh, have made me do these open forms. So you made me take up Twitter, which I swore I would never do, and I'm addicted, so I'm not taking my own advice on, uh, on making life simpler. But uh, one of the best things about my new job, my new full job, is um, the open forms that Jill and the team have created. And they're online, anonymous questions in real time, um, basically um, available on uh, to, to the entire organization and anybody else who wants to. A man or woman who makes the waste of perform a on one clinical unit is a way for one shift. There is a tangible feeling for our patients and our staff. So never confuse. to tell you that the health systems that I've worked in were all perfect by the time I right? was there nine months or was there 20 years. I can't. And I, I keep asking myself the question, so why not? So despite all this, USN still has an average like this day that Susan Fitzpatrick that's going to be on When I define my perhaps season, Susan, because we're at 105% on <laughs> um, And that our surgical site infection, as Ross, the chair of our committee is not in the upper decile, as a matter of fact, it's disappointing in the lower decile. What's wrong? So with all of the literature we have, with all of the information that we have, with all of the data that's available to us, how do we move some of these issues forward? And I'm gonna suggest to you it's back to that relentless study of variation and a relentless focus on three. What are the three things you are going to address at this time? And once once achieved or adequately achieved, how will you continue to keep a line of sight on those since we've all been party to a thousand examples of healthcare where we embark embark on an end objective, not badly achieve that objective, move on to the next objective only to watch this slide backwards very rapidly because of, I will suggest, inadequate time on task and measurement and burn in and incentive alignment. Uh, the, the theme of incentive alignment down on the personal incentives. Over and over and over has to be addressed in, in our discussion today, and I hope we'll talk about it a bit more in the questions. So, what about system-level engagement? Colin, um, I thought I don't know how glad you are, since you might be doing a bit of restructuring. I hear in the healthcare system, maybe kind of, sort of, I don't know. Um, I guess some unsolicited advice for all of us, and I wish I could say these were original thoughts, but purely stolen and lived experiences. When embarking on new directions, be it a systemic change or um, a a change within a program or unit or family practice environment or residential uh, housing setting, look at what we're doing and what's useful. Like really going back and asking the question when given the opportunity uh, of the things that we're actually spending our time on. And I want to give you a concession, my my UHN colleagues can correct me, but at UHM we spend too much time on meetings. Right, way too much time on meetings and way too little time on engagement with the people doing the work. And uh, you, you can decide whether that's one of the problems you have in your organization. But what's needed and useful? Uh, how can we become more proactive? And are we indeed looking upstream? Uh, social determinants of health. When I got to UHN, I heard people say, well, that's of course, our role in population health. And I kept saying, what is that? And they kept thinking, the board must have hired an idiot, he doesn't know what population health is. Uh, And I said, no, no, I've come from a place where Population Health master was very popular and well thought of and well thought out. I'm struggling with what's the role of a tertiary health care system, evolving to provide much more than tertiary services, and the real determinants of health, housing, food security, water access, employment. Our role clearly is to... Be better connectors and better partners for clients and patients and population groups that need that. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Can we also identify what we can remove that's not overly needed? And I know that's a difficult task in any organization. I, I would never once say to a group of people at UHN or elsewhere, you know, what well, we're going to eliminate you and your role because you're not valuable. That, that isn't, I don't think that's true. Uh, I, it would be a terrible thing if this ever suggests that we've been expanding public resources and it wasn't a value add. But what it does mean is for where we're at now, with the resources that we have and the objectives that we need, we need to repurpose those the resources. And, and we need to repurpose those resources around the group of three. Those three things that you will reliably pursue recognizing there a hundred others that come in from the sidelines that crash into Q that you must address. But again, that's not a task. I'm looking for malalignment. So, uh, for my sins, I've been working a little bit on the OMA um, um, uh, Government of Ontario process to get doctors and money and the Government of Ontario better aligned. Just a very easy task, should be done in a morning. Um, but in a word, it can't tell you the, the sense of agreement in every table. You couldn't tell if this was a ministry person, a humane person, a person from neither. The example after example after example of malalignment of incentives. And it's easy for me to point my finger and say, well, oh, yeah, the fee schedule is malaligned. What I now need to do, and we'll try to do a better job of resources, with allocation of time, with allocation of personnel, uh, over and over again. I think we've just realized that we're doing it because it's been comfort not because it's added value. And I uh, you know you'll do this, although uh, I do if you inherited a strategic plan and you came to the Ministry of Health and long-term care, uh, you may develop one, we'll leave that to you in the government of Ontario. But it, if you happen to drift into any, any restructuring of the healthcare system, if that happens to occur, uh, you know what? this the new agency or entity, do we have a strategic plan? And I don't mean that a strategic plan that says something like, we will not create the health of our Right. So I, we need to go to work every day so that people can say, here, I can take that plan and turn that into a tangible, this is what I'm gonna do today. And I understand what that means. So how do we align? I think I've talked a bit about that already, and, and, and systems can indeed change when new models of care emerges. I'm going to tell you my experience, transformative experience with integrated care, has been absolutely radical and, and very much like taking for patients and providers, and it wasn't complex. It absolutely required of us to get basically a hall pass from the ministry that said, we'll let you experiment and break some rules, but we'll watch you very carefully. We're not asking for more money, we're just asking you not to tell us how to use the money that we have let us do the things right. as a matter of fact, we want academically rigorous third party evaluation because if we're not doing something that adds value, let's stop, let's fail fast, and move on and try something else because there are a million things you and I know we'd like to do. So, changing how we think about healthcare improvement, I'm going to show it to Ross Baker again. For Ross really a life's work in this area. We're all often going back to your research and literature on this one. But clearly, new models of care have a We are not, not leading at the And the time has come for, in my opinion, hope each of you will be asking the question, so how can you embark on that integrated journey? Whether that's integrated in a mental health and addictions program and scope, or whether that's integrated in a very complex surgical endeavor, or whether that's implemented in a social housing a process of experience. So clearly, um, none of us were surprised by this. Poverty, as the least, is system problem, and we all know when we look at our data. We did this with health links. We did this with a number of other endeavors over the years. Uh, health, wealth and health are intimately linked, and those least advantaged amongst us economically are usually most disadvantaged amongst us from a health perspective. And looking at the latent defects in our design and the design of the healthcare system. Uh, will indeed set the stage, has indeed set the stage for so many bad outcomes. Are we prepared to, to make that change? Um, just this week, uh, my new colleague, and who's sorry he's here with us, joined UHN. And that was, was a big move for us. So I don't think UHN historically would have thought about social policy. We are big academic, tertiary, health science center. Very focused on, incredibly important, basic and applied research. Uh, we now recognize that those are absolutely things we should be focused on. But you know, because of the nature of Toronto, the, the many, many, many communities growing up around us, that we are not only a tertiary and quaternary health center, we're also a community hospital. At but, but the Western, for example, that emergency room sees things very similar to every other emergency room, as well as those crazy things like heart and lung transplants and all, that, all the other really exciting stem cell transplants and things like that. If we are not focused on that question, this large academic enterprises of, so what would it take in nudging the system? Can we build some capacity of nudging mentality, which we'll try to do with each If we're not focused on how we will take that new data on poverty and apply it and ask the question, what can we do? And the answer might be nothing. It might be very clear. UHN is not an environment, or your hospital or health system is not an environment where we can do much about finding affordable housing. But but when you as a group when we as a group come together and begin talking with municipal governments and provincial governments and philanthropists and people who really want to make the system better, and they actually see, wow, the best investment might be upstream into social prosperity, that's a fundamental difference. So it's interesting for those of you who follow Twitter, it was kind of news that the Ontario Hospital Association was advocating for funding at home care. That sort of swept the media recently. Ontario Hospital Association's been advocating for money into home care for about 12 years, and all of a sudden that's new news. But that's good. So f- finally we are seeing that people are beginning a discussion that says, how does one, while maintaining the important role of tertiary and, and secondary care, really look upstream? And and most importantly, how do you think meaningful partnerships? And I, I think the road to hell is littered with memorandum understanding. We have too many alleged partners often that we don't do anything with. So another takeaway for, for today, if you wish, is go back and look at all your partnerships and ask how much time you spend with them. And number one, how, many, how much is your bandwidth, how many partners does your bandwidth, or a half, number one. Number two, uh, what have you done with them in the last year that like you're going through your closed faucet? If you haven't done anything with them in the last year, either revitalize the partnership or are great, mm-hmm. really partners, or collaborators on occasion. And if we're collaborators on occasion, that's great. But who are your key partners that you think are going to help you achieve that, those three things that are going to help change your system? Encouraging frank dialogue, I've talked a little bit about that. I think the most important part is actually putting the um, elephant in the room on the table. Uh, Many times in the past, that's been physician compensation. So we've all been around the table, we've all been there, and we want to make a change, and no one actually really wants to say. But if we do that, physicians who are still primarily in a fee-for-service world will cut their billings and income in half, no one's gonna do that. And, and, And so leave that room and believe you've had a full area of the discussion, and not face that difficult issue dead on and talk about what are the solution. So it might be going and working with the Ministry of and Algorithm funding plan. It might be a, a, a group practice plan. There's a thousand potentials, but have the difficult conversation that you already know are the barriers to the integration that you are thirsting and for and, and, and anxious to see. So I'm going to say back to the real estate. what's missing? I think what's missing is a much more uh, um, focused. Commitment to integrated care across both health and social services. And I would uh, compel you to really look at delivering integrated care in these, in these uh, high populations. Uh, social prescribing, uh, we know over and over and over again, it is a, a, perhaps a, an extension to me of integrated care, but in a world that says you can only have this basket of services, that, that, but that's not what the patient actually needs. We are not meeting the needs of patient and we are not doing anything but frustrating the provider. So if the model said, I get some home care, and you'll give me a bath, but what I'm really worried about is my dog getting walked. Do you care? whether you give me a bath? Or you meet what my needs are, and want to make sure my dog gets walked. If I'm going to go out and walk that dog on my icy porch so that nobody shoveled and fall and break my head. And ask. So, in my view, we have asked the question: Is the outcome really where we're going? as I mentioned, um, face the difficult system discussions head on. Uh, don't avoid them any longer, and don't, the tape. Don't, don't, don't engage in them in Engage in correct respecting that they're difficult questions that have to be asked. So, how to I their safety, quality, and overburdened healthcare system, other than implementing failed bond as Patients and family engagement in the report physician, staff, and organizational engagement and system-level engagement. If there is one word that is constant in those three boxes, and you're all smart enough to see it, it's called engagement. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, so, for someone who said they weren't necessarily interested in Twitter, that was a uh, presentation that pointed itself to Twitter. So, well done. Uh, so we have about uh, 10 minutes, a little bit more than 10 minutes for some q and uh, so I have a mic here. And there is another one right at the back, so we probably won't get to everybody, but uh, raise your hand and we'll do our best. And we will start. We'll start right here. a can very so far. I think it's interesting to hear you disparage the uh, competition here involved. In the business. So I have two questions for you. What is? Do you see any value in competition in certain circumstances? And more generally, how do you? Well, what are your ideas about you know, instilling pride in your in your employees and in your organization? Yes. Yeah, so for you guys, probably was unclear. I'm, I'm not disparaging competition. I'm suggesting that competition should be on quality, outcome scholarship that by all means compete on those fronts, but competing to say which one of us has the best um, tertiary cardiac center, as opposed to collectively, we have the best tertiary cardiac center in the world, is what I'm suggesting, and that that is competing with the world, as opposed to competing with with Toronto or Ontario. We are way too small a country if we want to attract. Particularly industrial and commercial investment, and translate like that into new, new commercial enterprises. So, by all means, compete to be the best. But raise everyone's vote, not only your own. Did I answer I uh, Yeah, so I think one of the great defining characteristics of people in healthcare is they are incredibly proud of their institutions. Just to try to close one, if those of us who have done that <laughs> know how quickly uh, pride occurs. Um, And and so I think we also, at the moment, are suffering a little um, crisis of conscience and confidence. It's hard for people to feel extremely proud when they can't deliver the kind of service they were trained to do. And we're asking them to function at 110 or 111% capacity, and we're not giving them the basic tools of clinical academic practice. While, While I still am amazed by their pride and passion, I think they're pretty tired. But they're remarkably proud of their individual institutions, and no, no question about that. But I think that pride ebbs, when they see patients not getting the standard of care they've been trained to deliver, and their family members having an experience in the healthcare system, that is not optimal. But I, I don't think there's any lack of pride in Ontario's healthcare system. A former minister would have challenged us to say, you guys always talk about what's not good as opposed to what's good, and there's probably truth to that. That's the discipline of medicine, that's the discipline of healthcare. We don't go in and say, let's spend most of the meeting time and most of the clinical intervention talking about your health. Maybe we should. Most of it's designed for why are you here and what do you want me to fix? And that probably spills over culturally to when we're talking about healthcare. We don't talk about the great things as much as we should. And there are many, right, right at this moment, right around these walls, amazing healthcare, world class healthcare happening. But we're still focused on how can we make it better. Hi, uh, Kate Mulligan, Alliance for Health and Communities. Well, we've been um, leading the way on social prescribing in community health centers and primary care. So I'm very pleased to see you recommending social prescribing and talking about the determinants of health, backing that up with, with a new hire and really making make emphasis on that? So my question really is, what do you think are some of the structural changes and cultural changes that are needed to really support this and to make it happen beyond sort of and social prescribing? So, I still think that some, you know, what's in a name, but a lot. So, I think most people, when you talk about social prescribing, nod and smile and don't clue what we're talking about. Uh, Does anybody (laughs) anybody admit to putting up their hand on someone's hand? Um, So, number one, I think we have to recognize that this is about delivering health and social services that improve the quality of life of patients and probably moving this away from the view that it's different and radical. Actually, over. So we that We are already have good evidence that social prescribing, prescribing home care or child care or exercise or, and, and supporting, possibly uh, resourcing, some of those some of those services have tremendous paybacks. So I think mean, uh, one, one is recognizing it as not different or weird or unusual. Uh, that will require us to change health professional curriculum. It will also have to, I think, help us get out to the practicing profession and help them better understand, how do I do that? How do I make those connections? Uh, the last piece, I think, is uh, I, I am a, a big component, uh, a big proponent, rather, of um, uh, direct of consumer marketing when it comes to social prescribing. And I think, you know, increasingly we need to see patients asking, why can't I get this? But what I really need is some support here. A single parent mom, and you've got a frail elderly parent with some, with a lot of comorbidities, and you know children with some chronic diseases, and a job that's barely getting you above the um, poverty line. Maybe prescribing uh, some, some home care and some child care is the best thing we can possibly do for your health and well-being. Can I follow up just one question and if You talked about cooperative and integrated service delivery. Is there anything there that we can do to help support those kinds of, uh, you know, those transitions in care? Yeah, sure. I, I thousands of things in my view. Uh, the other is kind of cross reality. Right or wrongly. Your sector is way cheaper than this sector, right? And your scope of practice, we know. You know we're not maximizing. We know there are many things that healthcare providers, are not doing both the full, full practice, but equally many more things that they're not delegating to people who are less expensive and have more than adequate skills. So I know that's hard, and I know that's threatening, and I know that's a risk for job loss, but I think increasingly, uh, as we think about new investment, I'm not suggesting that this should result in radical job loss, but what is new investment into an environment that allowed us to extend that, while, while still preserving and protecting to the degree appropriate, the existing practicing professions. So I, I think there's a thousand things in there in integrated care that you could, should, and I hope will be doing, and probably are, I'm just not educated enough to know. Hi, uh, Nick Williams a of Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the government's uh, potential move to merge the lens into another entity, and how it's going to affect the delivery of healthcare programs. Okay. So, uh, so, I'm gonna... Uh, well, Nick, an like, I think it's interesting. interesting. <laughs> so, you know what? I've been around uh, healthcare and medical schools for a long time. And uh, for those of us uh, old enough, I'd say we've seen a lot of structural reform. And, you know, what uh, maybe the jaded amongst us will say when a function isn't working, change structure so you can be surprised that function still isn't working. That would be the cynical side of me. Uh, the more positive side of me is I think it's back to the advice I offer humbly, uh, and, and that is what's the purpose? What's the structure strategic direction? So for Helen and the ministry and for the premier and minister, if you've got a goal and the structure reform can help you get there. Thank yes. while well, that upset will unquestionably slow us down on some of our very um, direct. Okay Kevin, we've got about a minute for uh, one last question. Let's go. Um, I think some of the risk diversion is a, a result of um, the broader cultural environment. Failure will be punished as opposed to celebrated, and um, I know at, at our board, uh, both where I work previously and where I work now, well, while one wants to, to find the uh, pride in the institution or pride in, the, um, or in of the people, in the open sessions we need to be celebrating. We need to be talking about some great stuff we're doing. But in the closed session, we're bringing remarkable advisors on our boards, governors who have skills in so many sectors, all of whom are embracing fail fast so we can move on in our business. So I think a lot of it's starting with governance and pushing us to say, uh, boards, or board telling people like me, I actually don't want to hear more about how great you are. I want to hear more about where we're last. Why is, our, why is our surgical site infection not moving faster to be the top decile? In a good way. Why is hand washing not better than it is? And not in a, you know, someone beats will continue to morale occurs around here, but in how we to solve that. And, and most importantly, your company sounds like you're very interested in this area, how will the burn in curve so that we actually don't walk away from it and just watch it retrench back to the previous performance? With that, thank you very much, Kenny Smith. So, as you are uh, getting ready uh, to go on with the rest of your day, uh, Helen Angus was referred to an awful lot today. She will be speaking on April 2nd in the uh, FLEP Auditorium just down the hall. Also, coming up,